Warning, warning. Two idiots are reading the SCPs in an ambiguous location. I don't know why this fits into the lore anymore. Hello and welcome to Discovering SCP. The only podcast that has me, Tanhany. That's it, because I'm in two podcasts. Oh. <laughs> so that would right, yeah. if you involved me. I have actually... Yeah, it's only well, at the time of this run's release, this is the only podcast I'm in as well. Ooh. So it's still true for a little while. And this is the last uh, episode. The last episode. Oh, oh no! Actually, it's not the last episode of uh, 2020. It's not. We haven't. We haven't gotten this to five. Is the first oh, episode just... of 2021. Wait, no way. Well, it will be. We're recording this so, in 2020 on the so eve of So I would war. like everyone in in the comments, rather than a password, um, this this episode. And I might be defeating the purpose by putting this at the beginning. I would like everyone to thank Tanhony for literally carrying the new year on his shoulders through the snow, snow and pouring rain through the fields of lava and war. Because without him, there would have been no new year. And he dropped the satellite exactly. that allowed us to watch Darman videos to carry it. So please give him your thanks, uh, and if you really want to thank him, leave a review on Royal Road. Exactly, of April Space. Space. <laughs> Not just a review. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just a review on some random story. This is dedicated to Tan Honey, who carried <laughs> right. 2021 in. <laughs> um, anyway, so quick life update. Uh, my job won't give me any hours because the person who schedules hates me for some reason. And oh. I tried to start a Nuzlocke, and after less than an hour in Ultra Moon, which is mostly type tapping through text, everyone died to Captain Iima, including Tanhony. So it's pr- it's been a rough last day. So hopefully we turn things around with the podcast. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, so you better pick the best SCPs of all time. We're going all around Series 1 and 2 for this one. It's a very special theme. Uh, we'll so we go back in time. Because we've got all so right. much to do. We, our, our stock increases every time we jump ahead of Series and capitalize on that hype. I, I, I hate it because like there's always people who are like, you need to go back and do this SCP you skip. But then there's people who are like, why aren't you just doing 5,000 yet? Um... Mm-hmm. That's the only that reason one... I'm here, and once you do it, I'm going to unsubscribe, so do it. That one viewer? Oh, they're the worst about <laughs> it. <laughs> now everyone's going to be paranoid. It's like, is it me? Um, there was. Remember when there was one guy who, like, every two seconds asked you to write a GOI? Melvin Sherman? Remember that? I, I, I didn't think you'd name him, but name and shame. <laughs> name and shame. I just I just suddenly remember that the guy who like wanted you to write a GOI really bad. Are you ever gonna do I that know. for him? I did write one. I did write one and he didn't read it. <laughs> what is it? Don't worry, we'll get to it someday maybe. <laughs> oh, he's not very proud of it. He's hiding it, but very well. How many well, SCPs? This, do you have? this ain't about Merlin. <laughs> Mervin. <laughs> Mervin? Mervin? What was that? What? Did you say Mervin? Did you mix That's... Melvin and Sherman? I mixed Melvin and Merlin and then corrected it to Mervin. <laughs> Who the fuck is okay, Mervin? Has... So, so if you guys recall, we've escaped the the red room and we're looking for something. We're looking for that man. Yeah, but until we find him, how many? We're pouring SCPs through we some today? historical records now to try and discover he. Yes, so we have so, four. Uh... SC... Well, I have four articles today. I'll say. Okay, so it's going to be a mix of SCPs and tales. I never said that. Well, maybe yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why else would you say articles? <laughs> All right. We got four, S- count them four. Yeah, we're starting with SCP-662. 
And it's called S- Butler's Handbell by Rick Revelry. 662, that's like 20 less than the lizard. Mm. This is called something, what was it, by who? Butler's Handbell by Rick Revelry. Butler's Handbell, what an intriguing name. I'm actually kind of interested in this. Oh, hang on, wait, I gotta sign into the wiki. Hang on, you know how it is. Classic, classic discovering SCP problem, am I right? This is is what you come here for. If you're still here on episode 45, you're used to this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm already in, so it's not even a problem. <laughs> Sunk like... cost fallacy. Exactly, you're already in. <laughs> you can't uh, stop listening wait, now. Actually, it's just... <laughs> I logged in, but it just says, please wait, and it's not loading. <laughs> you don't need to be logged in. We can just read. All right, now I'm logged in. Let's go. Go, 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 go. Okay. I've been waiting for you. Item number SCP-662. Object class SOFA. Okay. Special containment procedures. The SCP should be kept in its red velvet-lined case and stored in high-value storage locker 23C, located located at Werbenham, when not being utilized for testing or other appropriate activities. The item itself is safe to handle and poses no known threats of any kind, though the effects generated could be considered highly valuable and variably powerful depending upon how the SCP is used. Alright, you're not going to believe me, but I think I already know what this is. What is it? Considering the name, it's said to be valuable, and the fact that uh, Series 1 sure does love its magic items, I'm assuming it's a handbell that one, when rung, summons some sort of anomalous butler that can complete anything you ask of it, even through anomalous means or some shit. Uh, let's get to the description. <laughs> the SCP's a small if I'm sofa. Right, if I'm right, you have to buy me a soda. No, I don't know. The SCP is a small silver handbell, four centimeters tall and two centimeters in circumference. The bell is missing its ringer. Within the inside of the bell, an inscription has been etched into the silver, reading Forever Mine, SJW. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. That's a different tone now in 2020! <laughs> that's unfortunate. <laughs> the bell is susceptible to damage. However, given its safe nature, sofa nature, sorry, destruction has been deemed unnecessary. Mm. That's some series one, though, because you have to, you have to like, just... Yeah, because safe, because safe, safe is about, is about the, um... No, I just mean that it won't hurt I just mean the fact. I just mean the fact that they have to justify not destroying it is very serious. One there. Oh yeah, because to be fair, there were a lot of series one SCPs that they were like, let's just kill like 096 or 682, but they just couldn't. Yeah, I just mean these days you wouldn't even have that sense. You'd just take it as a given. To be fair, in 2020, the tech the Foundation has, and I mean that by like through the later series, is much better than their series one tech, which seemed to be a little more grounded in reality. Maybe mm. like a movie spy tech, but it feels like nowadays they just have literal bullshit that can contain stuff, and they have like thaumials. But like back in series one, it kind of felt like the foundation just had tech, but like you know what you they would see. They started off maybe. in a garage, and now the yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here with my Lamborghini. <laughs> As it is made of very pure silver. It requires regular mm. polishing to remain without tarnish. Ooh. Very oh, pure. Purest of silver. <laughs> it's very pure. So, does it matter if it's tarnished, or is it just noting that it should be kept clean to look nice? I guess. I don't know. When the bell is shaken right. as if to ring it, a soft chime can be heard, although this does not come from the bell. A short, well-dressed Caucasian butler of self-proclaimed British heritage, calling himself Mr. Deeds, will appear from the nearest area not within line of sight, usually from around a corner. Mr. Deeds. <laughs> I like that note because it like makes it look more natural than if he just manifested in midair. Yeah. 
<laughs> Mr. Deeds will address the ringer of the bell by their appropriate title and last name and ask what it is they desire. What I'm wondering now is, let's say you set up a bunch of, like, CCTVs around corners. Like, would it still teleport around the corner and you'd see it on the CCTV? Or would it, like, do some weirdo shit and have to (laughs) jog, like, down the block to get to you? He comes in on a little bike. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding! His knowledge of individuals' last names and titles is a mystery, as he himself would purport. Please see interview log 662L1 for further details. Is is that something we'll need to read there, or are we passing I think we're going to leave that for now. We may come back to it. Most reasonable requests given to Mr. Deeds will result in satisfaction. However, there are are limits to what he can do. He is unable to produce very complex items such as sports cars, luxury homes, or personal jets. If he is allowed to leave Lion Sight and return, he is able to produce smaller, less complex items such as a hand sandwich, a glass of iced tea, or even more luxurious items like caviar or a brick of gold. (laughs) Wait, hold on. Is this how the Foundation funds themselves? Can't they just limitlessly ask for gold? But with the economy. I know, but, like, they'll just have to find some other item worth a lot. Like, could they they ask for, like, retro games and sell them? Or, like, gold? You know, like, to keep... Like, is this how the Foundation funds themselves, is what I'm asking. I always imagine there's a bunch of different weird funding methods. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine, but this has to be one of them, right? There's no way they don't take advantage of this. It's too easy. Maybe. Well, let's find out. A list of notable items the butler has thus far been able to provide to those who ring the bell may be found in addendum 662-A1. Mr. Deeds will... Something else at Series 1 is that they do call him Mr. Deeds all the time. Yeah, instead of by the SCP name. Yeah. Will also perform menial tasks such as washing vehicles, preparing food, and cleaning bathrooms. If a request is deemed... This guy's based. I know, I love Mr. Deeds. If a request is deemed unreasonable or impossible by the butler, he will kindly tell the ringer so, and offer an alternative if one may be had. We should get get a bell like this for Lon Lang and Anomalous and be like, Excuse me! (laughs) Edit one podcast episode, please! please. co-hosts, I don't need this man anymore. (laughs) Wait, what? Dispose of him. (laughs) With pleasure. The butler is not immune to ill actions taken against him while in sight. He has been killed or injured in multiple tests, and will remain either dead or injured until he is out of sight. Upon return with a ring of the bell, all previous injuries will have vanished, and he will be groomed and well-dressed in his uniform, and ready for the next order. That's some Westworld shit. (laughs) (laughs) Dolores, let's get you patched up. Someday. (laughs) Oh my god, is he just a Westworld robot? Is that what's going on here? A more detailed explanation of the jobs he can perform and the limits to which he may be put can be found in the aforementioned interview log 662-L1. Test logs relating to his ability to heal himself and those of the properties of the bell may be accessed by any level 2 or higher personnel. All attempts to catch Mr. Deeds disappearing have failed, as equipment will either fail or we will find a suitable unobserved spot. He's like Slenderman. Alright. And then we have a long list of items he can summon. Why don't we go over these? Yeah, you can read these. Alright. <clears throat> uh, items. Nearly any conceivable kind of sandwich. Human flesh has been requested as lunch meat and politely denied. Beverages, also of nearly any kind. As with sandwich meat, human blood has been requested and denied. Pig blood, however, was served promptly. Still warm. Does that mean he would serve, like, piss beverage? And, the like, fact shit that it's sandwich? still warm is kind of terrifying. <laughs> A brick of 99.98% pure gold. Mr. Deeds produced a brick of 99.14% pure gold and apologized for being unable to provide the requested purity. 
A brick of 99.24% pure silver. That's a very pure bomb, silver. Politely de- denied. <laughs> That's the purest silver. A hand grenade of modern U.S. military grade, which performed as expected in testing. A blue 1963 Corvette convertible, politely denied. The board game Monopoly, which Mr. Deeds won on the first playthrough. A Fabergé egg, politely denied. What's a Fabergé egg? Is that like candy? No, it's like a sort of... Let me, let me get the inscription. It's hard to describe. Is it like an egg made of gems or some shit? Yeah, it's like a jewel deck. Oh. It's super, like super special 57 surviving in the world. Interesting. SCP blank, politely denied. A bouquet of freshly picked red roses. A bouquet of wild turnbusties, politely denied. Turnbusty is not an actual known type of flower. Tasks. Cleaning of Dr. Mirth's car. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that was a test. Performed near perfection. Near? (laughs) Washing of dishes accumulated from a day's worth of meals. Yeah, I love another cool thing about Series 1 is, like, in later series, they would make it all very scientific and it would be all, like, practical, but they're just having them do their fucking chores for their test (laughs) log, like, total trust from day one. I love it. It turns out that Mr. Uh, Meals uh, from the cafeteria on level blank of blank performed to much higher standards than usual. That seems passive-aggressive towards the cooking staff. I know, some stuff going Uh, on behind the scenes. (laughs) <laughs> trimming of Dr. Mirth's hair performed I would turns not out give him a Deeds pair of scissors and let him near me if I worked to the foundation so you requested human blood was it snip snip washing of Dr. Shit. Mirth's laundry performed and the clothing found to fit better in Dr. Mirth's estimation assassination of Osama Bin Laden politely denied Mr. Deans claimed Bin Laden was too well guarded and entrenched but could not or would not give further details Dude, you could <laughs> Oh, do you think he was there when they took him out? <laughs> he was like, "Who's this butler? Started... Is this your man?" He's like, "Oh my! It seems I've overstayed my welcome." He like deflects the bullets <laughs> with his knife. <laughs> Assassination of a D-class individual room over performed with vicious precision using a buck knife to the throat. So he's not opposed to killing, but he's opposed to bringing human blood. It's rude, I guess. Or maybe he only killed the D-class because they're a death row inmate. I don't fucking know. Note, further tests with regards to Dr. Mirth's personal effects are to be forbidden unless approved by one level 05 overseer. You've been warned, Dr. Mirth. Again, do the Uh, 05 council have nothing better to do? (laughs) Maybe Dr. Mirth is like the nephew of someone on the 05. But it's like every well, time that's, he that's wants what's fun. Here, here's 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 what's interesting though, because compared to modern SCP, I agree. It seems silly the O5 cares about shit like Cassie in this. But compared to series one, when there weren't that many SCPs, we don't really know the scope of the Foundation or O5, so it doesn't seem as ridiculous to them at the time of writing, you know? Because the Foundation isn't yet this global spanning super OP thing. They they just basically are like government plus. It feels so like I kind of working I'm kind of okay same- with it. It feels like working at, like, Google. No, like, working at Facebook and, like, emailing Mark Zuckerberg when you need a... when he wants well, to go well, to the toilet. But, but, but yeah, I get what you mean, but that's looking back in perspective because Google is a huge company and that's how we see the foundation now. But back then, the foundation was kind of... we didn't... nobody really knew how big it was or how epic they were or whatever. It was... and, and that's honestly something I like more because it seemed... even though it's not scientific, the articles are a lot more personable... And, and the effects feel more frightening, even from less scary SCPs, compared to nowadays where every SCP can fucking end the world instantly, but the Foundation has the perfect fucking next millennia tech to contain it. You know what I mean? 
it, it feels mm. more not well, realistic. Sort of general, I want to say, but it feels more... a little bit though, because there are there are newer articles that do have the same kind of tone and shit. That's true, but 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 I feel like you see that more in series one. And to be fair, I haven't read series six, so I can't compare the newer articles you're talking about. We've only gone up to series four, but I, I kind of like that honestly. It feels more grounded, which makes the stakes more personable. Because for example. I can imagine an SCP that's, like, killing a couple of people, getting trouble. They're desperately caging it, like, with Abel, even though Abel's kind of over-the-top anime. But, like, fucking, when you get to, like, oh, it'll destroy the whole world and reverse time, it's like, well, the scales are too grand for me to picture in my mind. And when so many things do that, it stops really mattering, you know? Mm. Especially with the introduction of 2000, which is, like, you can just reset whenever you want. I don't know. Sorry, that just became, like, my complaint on SCP culture to defend fucking the use of O5. Uh, my point is, I'm not saying because it's old, it should be allowed, I guess, to get away with Once bad writing, but I feel... music to start up behind you here as you speak. Yeah. Like, like, it's not allowed to get away with bad writing, I agree. Like, using Mr. Deeds instead of the SCP is kind of silly, but, like, no one fucking knew how big the O5 was yet. Give them a break. Like, the standards haven't really been, been expressed. And that's my essay on, on Mr. Deeds. On why the O5 should be in charge of Dr. Murph's personal effects. <laughs> well, never mind. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's up to you if you're going to interpret my argument in the positive light or not. Acquisition report. Oh, sorry. This is you now. Yeah, I'll go back. So SCP-662 was discovered in the possession of a petty thief and grave robber in Mablian Op, USA. Well, that, that's, that's Garmbun, Illinois, buddy. No. <laughs> oh. The thief was Sorry. in the process of selling the SCP to a pawn shop in the me- that's P A W N, you 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 viewers in the mansion town mm. when the bell was accidentally rung by the pawn shop attendant. Why is ringing quotations? It was actually okay. It would oh, help yeah, if you said no pawn. Ringer. It's 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 pronounced pawn shop. You're making it sound like porn. It's pawn, like pawn. prawn. There you go. King shop. Mr. Deeds appeared from the storage area behind the counter and promptly addressed the attendants. Believing that he was about to be robbed by the two men, the attendants overreacted and managed to get hold of a shored-off shotgun from under the counter. Mr. Deeds was fatally wounded by the attendant and died on scene. This is definitely in America. The thief escaped, but was apprehended by Foundation agents after a week-long search of the surrounding towns. Look at this guy with his commentary. Under questioning, the thief revealed that he found the bell in its box in the grave of Beep, located on the outskirts of the above-mentioned town. He was then remitted for D-class personnel assignment and subsequently perished during testing of SCP blank. Let's say 682, because it probably was. The bell mm-hmm. did not come under the purview of the Foundation until after the crime and subsequent transport of Mr. Deed's body to the local morgue. After disappearance of the body from the morgue, an agent was sent to investigate the possible outbreak of SCP blank or other unknown necrotic reinvigorating cause. I love how there's more than one possible zombie virus. <laughs> Mr. D. SCP, man. He also, when was this written? Like early 2011, 2012? That was when zombies were getting really big, yeah? Yeah. 2010. Wait, Mr. no, this D. was written in 2009. Oh my god. Mr. Deeds reappeared in the case file item storage room of the local constabulary after the bell was handled by Sergeant Graham. He was quickly apprehended, and Agent Clayson took him into custody three hours after reappearance under the guise of an FBI agent. When the handcuffed Mr. Deeds once again disappeared, the angel in... Angel? Agent! (laughs) (laughs) The agent intuited that the bell itself may have something to do with the string of incidents. 
and after acquiring it and testing proved his hunch, brought the bell back to here for further testing. I love how they just tested it on site without fucking even going back to the SCP place. (laughs) They're just like, oh, I'll just use it right here. (laughs) That would, in like Series 6, that would get a fucking dude executed. But instead, Agent Clayson was awarded an official foundation pat on the back plaque for his handling of the incident (laughs) and lack of self-saving interest once he discovered what the Bell and Mr. Deeds were capable of. So not only was he rewarded for using it without taking it back first, I wonder if there's more tales about that of, like, a guy finding an anomalous SCP they were sent to recover and then, like, greed making them keep it. Like, maybe a powerful weapon or something. That'd be interesting to read. So I gotta be honest. This, 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 if you take into account how the Foundation is set up, even in parts of Series 1 and especially later on, it doesn't hold up well, the structure doesn't follow the formula, and um, there isn't really a clear theme or thorough line. It's just kind of a goofy, funny, uh, kind of su- maybe lighthearted slash sweet telling. Um, with a with the occasional odd SCP thing thrown in, I feel like purely because it was on SCP, like, like this guy is mostly a good guy, they only had him do good things, and then, like, randomly he committed an assassination. I, I, it was weird. But, um... But, um... So in terms of that, I feel like I would have to give this one a 3 out of 10. But out of sheer enjoyment, out of sheer enjoyment of this, I really enjoyed it. It's a nice break from the super serious, always gritty SCP setting. It's cute. It's kind of... It's kind of refreshing, honestly, after a while, especially in Gen 4 where fucking everything is, it's genetically identical to a thing it's not, or whatever. Uh, I'm going to give this one the, the maximum plus three for personal enjoyment and bump it up to a six out of ten. You had me so worried for me there that there were now two rating scales. No, 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 this is the same rating scale. <laughs> yeah, okay. I give up to plus the, or minus the, three, but I, but I just wanted to specify, that. I didn't... I did, yeah, the only reason I did that is because if I just said 6 out of 10, even though people know that's my rating, how I do my rating system, they might think... I'm, I'm trying to be fair. This thing, compared to the standards and the writing formula, doesn't hold up. But I'm giving it that as high as 6 out of 10 because of my personal enjoyment of yeah, it. Yeah, I, I was just I'm so worried that, that you'd start doing three. like 4D ratings. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What do you think? I quite like it, but I don't know how much that is the original article I like or Mr. Deeds in other stuff. Because he does pop up now and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, that's a good point. Um, so I'm curious why you decided to come back to this one. Was it like requested, or did you just want me to see it? It was, it was a couple of requests there. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of one of the golden oldies. I thought we might we got to get out at some point. Nice. All right. Okay. So what do we got next on the list? So we're going. Oh, a bit God, we spent twenty two and a half minutes on that because I fucking <laughs> I had to go off okay, for no SCP one eight six seven is the next one. Oh, this one, this one is called "A Gentleman" by Jorick. I love that picture of like a fucking freaky ass clay snail. Also, Jorick, why does that name sound familiar? I think we have. Read We've read some of his stuff before, right? Yeah. yeah. Good to see you again, Jorick. I like your little profile picture of Link drinking coffee. He looks so cranky. All right, let's get into this. Nice, nice, nice. I have some number. SCP eighteen sixty seven. Object class so far. Special containment procedures. The SCP is to be kept in a 40 by 70 by 30 centimeters aquatic specimen tank. No additional security measures are necessary. The SCP's environment and the cur thereof are identical to that of non-anomalous members of the species. Recovered items relating to the SCP will be placed in secure storage vault 16. Access to these items and to the SCP itself is with permission of an appropriate level 2 staff member. 
On blank blank 2012, the SCP has requested access to a selection of novels and nature journals. Request was denied. Alright, I was about to say I didn't think we had enough. First of all, I don't know why that request was denied. That seems cruel, unless its power lets it, like, use things inside of those or whatever. But based on the name and what it is in that description, the last sentence really gave me the clue. I assume it's a snail, but it's, like, able to talk, purports itself to be a gentleman, and likes to read fancy stuff. Well, let's find out. Description. The SCP is a new... Is, wait a minute. Is the mimic... Is, is the mimic... It's a mimic. Is the gimmick of this fucking uh, episode, like, gentleman or something? Or, like, classy? Well, let's find out what's going on here. The SCP is a new right. branch of the species Nembrofa cuberiana. Variable neon slug, measuring 11.7 centimeters or 4.6 inches, if you want to be incorrect, in length. There are no physical differences between the SCP and any other member of the species. The SCP is sapient uh... and capable of telepathic communication with individuals within five meters. It identifies itself as Lord Theodore Thomas Blackwood, a British. Explorer. Oh, that's the that's the guy we heard about before, right? Oh, maybe. A British... Lord Blackwood. Oh, I don't remember what we heard about him before. We, well, someone was asking about him, and you were like, we'll get to that. And I yeah, was like, yeah. what's Lord Blackwood? And you went, oh, you'll see. Okay. <laughs> a British explorer and naturalist. No such individual appears in any municipal records. The SCP speaks with terminology and style appropriate to late 19th century England and is generally friendly and cooperative with researchers. The SCP makes repeated claims of past exploits and accomplishments, including service in the Second Opium War, Expeditions to remote <laughs> regions of the world and encounters of rare, various rare creatures okay. and peoples. So he's basically like a 19th century British dude who was like always out on safari. Yeah. Is like his personality. Okay, cool. Despite the questionable validity of many of its claims, the SCP has shown in-depth knowledge of geography, zoology, botany, archaeology, anthropology, and linguistics relating to its claimed regions of exploration, as well as more esoteric fields such as obscure mythology, mysticism, and cryptozoology. However, the SCP does not seem to realize, or willfully ignores, any events or information dating after approximately 1910. Please, God, tell me the tales you have planned are like him exploring these areas and us learning about his explorations. Please. <laughs> when, re when requested to give proof of its exploits, the SCP provides an address near London, England, claiming that it would be <laughs> more, not than London. To, more than willing to donate to Londinium, <laughs> if you want to be fancy. <laughs> Claiming they would be more than willing to donate its collection. Investigation of the address led to a cottage owned by one Miss... Uh... Lady... Blank Marbles. <laughs> who claimed to be keeping the house for Lord Blackwood. Further questioning failed to reveal any details of the SCP's nature and origins beyond what the SCP had already provided. Miss Marbles died of heart failure five days after Foundation agents began investigations. Do you think that was just because she was old, or do you think it's because he like planted some fucking like thing in her body that would kill her if she talked about him? <laughs> like JoJo style, she or like fucking Muzan, yeah, like oh no, it's activating! I, I didn't mean to. I said it on accident. Please. <laughs> I'm a living being, infinitely close to perfection. <laughs> Says a sea slug. <laughs> I love this. I love Lord Blackwood already. Investigation of the cottage revealed an underground vault containing over 3,000 artifacts, zoological and bot botanical specimens, a library containing over 5,000 items, and a functioning, if outdated, laboratory. All materials within the collection were removed and relocated by the Foundation over the course of three weeks. 
This is another thing I like about the earlier series. I know this is series two. And granted, maybe you're just not showing me the silly ones because you're the one who curates what I see. But it feels like as we go later, everything is so, like, almost grimdark and, like, overly serious and everyone cusses every five seconds. But, like, I really like these kind of silly and wondrous SCPs that, like, you know, not every anomalous thing wants to kill everybody or, like, cause severe damage or curse every five seconds. Sometimes they're just, like, anomalous, you know? And they have their own thing going on. And especially sentient ones, it makes sense that they would do something other than hunt people or be evil. He, he, he's a fucking explorer. He collects shit. You know, that's what he likes to do. He has hobbies. Well, I like why it. Give, why don't you give us this addendum of the stuff he's collected? Sure. Addendum 01. A full listing of items recovered from SCP-1867's collection may be found in document 1867-VL. Items of particular note include 116 unknown species of plants, 107 unknown species of insects, 28 unknown species of lizards, 23 unknown species of fish, 14 unknown species of amphibians... 12 unknown species of mammals, fossils pertaining to 8 un- Can I just stop saying unknown? We get it. Yeah. They're not ones we found. A species of dinosaur, fossils pertaining to 12 species of prehistoric mammal, artifacts belonging to 29 indigenous societies. All those are unknown. 35 handwritten journals containing records of recordings of events described by SCP-1867. The accounts are generally identical, save some slight variations and exaggerations on the part of SCP-1867 in retelling, and have been dated to the appropriate time period of the events described. 20 kilograms of processed opium, collection of firearms of make and model not correlating with any known manufacturers, including three wide-bore muskets marked as Dr. B.T. Moth's effective particle destabilizers. These items are non-functional. Do you think that he, because he has, like, firearms and shit, maybe he used to be human and he became a snail? Maybe. There's a lot of discussion related to this. (laughs) I unironically want, like, a Breath of the Wild-style game with, like, Lord Blackwood, where you just, like, explore shit and, like, craft and like, and like, maybe, maybe like the first hour of the game, you're a human, right? And then you're just a snail the rest of the game forever. And yeah, it's like minish cats or someone else's hats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then at the very end, like you, you're about to cure your snail thing, and the fucking foundation picks you up. And they're like, "Oh shit, we gotta take this back to base." Uh, detailed globes of Mercury, Venus, Mars, and the Galilean moons, accompanied by notes detailing possible paths of surface exploration. A heavily modified carriage containing instruments of unknown purpose. A note attached to the door reads, On the Fritz, speak with Henry, in handwriting matching that of the journals. Data expunged. Four agents were killed after activation before the object was destroyed. When questioned about the item, SCP-1867's response was, I did warn you to be careful around my collection. That bloody thing nearly took my head off back in Woking in 97 when I found it. Addendum 02. The following interview is dated 0845 blank blank 2012. Do you want to be the doctor or the SCP? I'll be the doctor. I'll give you (laughs) this role. All right. Good morning, 1867. Ah, good morning, doctor. Wonderful to see you. Come in, come in. Have yourself a seat. Now, if I remember correctly, the last time you were here, I was telling you about the time I was captured by the Ubula tribe of the Congo. Actually, I had some questions about your story. You see, no such tribe exists. Of course not. There weren't any of the Ubula left after the village was attacked by Mokele Mende. I still regret not being able to bag that monster when I had the chance. It is a persistently elusive creature. 1867, we have no actual proof that what you're saying is not just an elaborate fiction. 
The artifacts and records we found in your vault could easily be fakes. I'm going to use facts and logic. I want to see the fucking, the Davite book one day, like, ten years after this interview, like, fucking lights up and it mentions Ubula and they're like, fuck, fuck! Nonsense. I would never fabricate any of my work. Why, it's against the very heart of being a naturalist. While I am repeatedly amazed by your institution here, you seem to be missing the explorer's spirit. When I scaled the Himalayas in search of the monks of the Golden Mountain, did I worry about what others had said about them? Of course not! I went and found out for myself! You do realize that you're a sleaze sea slug, right? Oh, good heavens, boy, have you been drinking? That's utterly ridiculous! If you can't be bothered to be sensible, I have no reason to speak with you. Go get yourself a nice cup of tea and sober up. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 10 out of 10. I'm sorry, it is. It just is. Um, jokes aside, I'm going to give this one a 7 out of 10 for writing, style, themes. There isn't too much of a theme or story, but there is a little bit of through line. It's explained, rather than having a narrative focus in terms of story, it more focuses on the comedy and the kind of building up of this situation and what the hell is going on. The interview is short but cute. Uh, there's a little bit more that could be added that maybe is supplemented with further added tales in the future, but I'm definitely giving it the full plus 3 for enjoyment and putting it at a 10 out of 10. That was awesome. Nice. That's an upvote. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I like that a lot. <laughs> that was really fun. I'm so glad we read that. And I God, I hope these tales live up. And the next one is called Lord Blackwood and the Great Tarrasque Hunt of 83. Yes! I feel like uh, we should popcorn is it like... this because it's quite bulky. <laughs> um, well, we have enough time. We're already at like 30... Uh, whatever. Anyway, is this Tarrasque like the D&D Tarrasque or Tarrasque like the original Mythos Tarrasque? We'll find out. Okay. Oh god, this is fucking long and, and not and not spaced out well. My ADHD brain is so intimidated. Don't worry. Alright, how I can how about we do we switch off at each day? Yeah, sure. Alright, do you want to do the first day or shall I, my friend? You can. May fourteenth, eighteen eighty three. I received a most curious missive in the post this morning. It has been four months since I returned to England, having nearly lost my life and endeavouring to become the first man to reach the summit of the foreboding and deadly Mount Everest. I've spent the time since in research and recovery oh, this here is, in Oh, London. by the way, by the way, this is by, this is by Smapti, I forgot to say. Smapti. Hello, Smapti. Yeah. I'm not going to read this whole narrative in Lord Blackwood's voice, by the way, to, for my okay, sanity, yeah, yeah. but... Nursing, but if he talks, I'll, like, do it. Nursing my wounds and documenting my memoirs of the harrowing trip up the mountain and my nearly fatal encounter with the creature I found there, a tale which, I fear, may never be told outside these diaries, and I have not planned to embark again for distant shores until after summer has passed. That has changed, I fear, as a result of today's letter. It was a formal affair, written in a folded card like a wedding invitation, sealed in the finest envelope, and I presented to you below. To Lord Theodore Thomas Blackwood, CBE. Wait, what? Hmm? Never mind, that's BCE. What's CBE? Uh, CBE is... Like Colonial British Empire? Order of the British Empire. Commander of the British Empire. Is it? Yeah. That's based. Colonel Joseph d'Enfant, l'Armée de Terre of the Republic of France, does hereby cordially invite you to participate in a hunt! of a great and terrible creature that threatens the lives of thousands. The Tarrasque! A creature great and terrifying, of late believed to be legend. Uh, granted that this is from France, I assume it's the original Tarrasque. 
especially because of the spelling, uh, has arisen and threatens the security of the land of Provence and of France itself. Cole d'Enfant has been authorized by the President of the Republic to pay a sum of five million English pounds to the man or men who shall slay this infamous beast. RSVP in care of Co Colonel d'Enfant, number 22, Kensington Road, Knightsbridge, London. Shall I tell you a little bit about the original Tarasque? Uh, go for it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it to the short version. Basically, there was this uh, big creature that used to eat people and, like, hunt around in this area of France. And they're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And then St. Martha came uh, strolling in. You know the one from, uh, not from Catholic uh, mythology, but the one from Fate, I'm sure you're familiar with at least. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And she, and they were like, go kill it for us. You're so strong, St. Martha. And she's, Martha, and she's like, no, I'm going to befriend it. So she befriended it. And it was like, all right, I'll be good now. So she brought it back to town to tell them it would be good. But they obviously panicked seeing the creature, and they shot it on sight and killed it. And then she was like, hey, you can't kill things. That's not nice. And they're like, we're sorry. We'll name our town Tarask after it in honor of it. <laughs> <laughs> that is legitimately the story. <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> dumb. <laughs> I immediately dashed off in acceptance and sent it out with the afternoon post. Though I have hunted foxes and elephants and every beast, great and small, in between, I had never heard of such a creature as the Tarask, and certainly never had an opportunity to hunt one. I spent my afternoon in the study, poring over encyclopedia in tomes of history and mythology, before I found the term in a collection of folk tales regarding St. Martha. Says, oh, I didn't even need to give you the fucking lore. <laughs> Sister to Mary Magdalene, who had supposedly calmed the beast with her song. The text described it as a vicious creature, a massive chimera that breathed fire and whose scaly hide repelled every blade, that killed without remorse and seemed only to wreak havoc, chaos for its own enjoyment. When the last delivery of the day came just before tea time, I had received an address and directions to attend a briefing the day after tomorrow in the city. I have always been a firm believer in the proposition that, even in the most preposterous of myths, there lies a kernel of truth. Whether an ancient behemoth that breathed fire was bringing ruination to the south of France, I knew not. But I knew that the army and the president themselves were concerned enough to seek out a man such as myself. Was there actually a president in France in 1883? Didn't they still have a king then? I, I don't know. Maybe when was the French Revolution? French Revolution was in... It was shortly after the American Revolution, so they probably the did have a president. The French Revolution began in May 1789. Yeah, so they would have had a president. I'm dumb. <laughs> and were willing to offer a bounty that would finance a score of proper expeditions for the killing of a single beast. On Wednesday, I will learn why. And I'll leave it off to you, my friend, for this day. May 16th, 1883. Today I attended Colonel Defont's meeting, held in a private room in the city, at the club owned by Messrs. Marshall, Carter, and Dark. Lest the reader question hey. my... The boys. <laughs> Lest the reader question... so much. Lest the reader question my morality, I assure you that I am no member, dues paying up otherwise, of that association. I find their stock in trade offensive and deplorable, and their clientele even more so. Who who wrote the tale that we read? Because I, I know that's supposed to be a big thing that everyone knows and probably likes for different reasons, but I really love them because of that tale we read on the stream by one of our viewers, and I want to give them a shout-out, but I can't remember who the fuck did it. I can't remember either. It was, I, I'm pretty sure it was like either Flops or Love You or... I think it was one of those two, but I can't remember. Uh, and if I'm wrong, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Please please let me know in the comments if you remember. But, sorry, on this day, but on this day, the windowless establishment was free of its usual throng of libertines and bohemians, replaced by a handful of officers and men in the uniforms of the French, a handful of our own soldiers guarding the door. Servants and waiters, apparently relieved to be in our company rather than that of their usual employers, offered drink and hors d'oeuvres to their guests. 
Besides myself, there were three guests of honour at the meeting. There was an American, Mr. Roosevelt, a young man who had made himself already quite a name as a hunter of big game in the American West. Oh my god, I think they're talking about President Roosevelt, the cool one. (laughs) There was Mr. Dukov, a Russian I knew by reputation as a scientist and historian. Did you know that Mr. Roosevelt had a pet bear? Yeah, I I know, he's he's like crazy. He's fucking awesome. And he, he got shot while giving a speech and just kept going. Nice. Lastly, there was another Englishman, the same Mr. Harris, whom readers of these pages may recall as he whom I matched wits with on the banks of the Nile in 1855. I will spur the reader the excruciating details of our past intercourse. Suffice it to say that Mr. Harris and I were schoolmates at Eth Eton, that I regarded him then as little more than a common blackguard. And what news I've uh, heard... A blackguard. Since... Really? Is that... Oh, are you sure? It's pronounced blackguard. Oh, black. Okay. And what that what news ha- I have heard of him since then has given me little reason to change my assessment of his personage. Roasted. I literally, I literally only know that because I play a lot of Hades, and there's a character that calls you a blackguard like every two seconds. <laughs> Colonel. Du- <laughs> uh, I I love this because I'm I'm imagining this is good. I'm so sorry. I keep interrupting you. I know that's the premise of the podcast, but I still feel bad. Um, I, uh, I imagine this is going to be something Indiana Jones-esque and Harris is going to, like, betray them or set them into a trap to take all the treasure. And then, and then Blackwood gonna will make save it the out day. Of yeah, well, only because of Blackwood. He's going to save the day. Ah. Alright, sorry, continue. <laughs> Let me just get my place back. Colonel Day Font, a short and middle-aged. A short and middle-aged man who bore signs of great fatigue and worry. Spoke briefly and elaborated on his reasons for calling on the four of us. The being that his government had come to call the Tarask, he said, had first appeared the Sunday after Easter near the village of Tarascon, named most coincidentally for the mythical beast itself, and had destroyed Just the like town I told you. utterly, claiming several thousand souls in the process. The handful of survivors who escaped the devastation had described the great lizard, nimble and merciless, that had charged directly into the town square and destroyed everyone and everything in its path crushing, smashing, and devouring people, livestock, and buildings alike. I, I love how they're like, let's not get the military, let's get the four generals of safari hunting to <laughs> save the day. <laughs> what, one man, a father whose wife and children had been ripped to shreds by the beast, claimed that it spoke to him in plain French and told him of them, Il était repugnance. Which uh, translates to, they were disgusting. Damn. <laughs> Do we know who this Tarasque is, my friend? Uh, oh, no. No way! <laughs> do, you, do you think instead of the Tarasque, it's 682? Yeah, that's what he says in the interview. Oh, God, I'm stupid. <laughs> I like how 682 knows French. <laughs> you just sit down to repugnance. Well, maybe he doesn't... He, I like to think he's a tsundere about some humans because he liked the ghost girl, right? And he made mm. the effort to learn French. So he must have... I, I like to imagine he has this deep backstory where he like had a human friend once that either betrayed him or died and then he lost all hope in humanity and like came to hate them because they like did his friend wrong or something. It's kind of <laughs> like like some, something like Gilgamesh and Enkidu-esque or whatever. That's nice. Since then, the colonel said, three outlying villages and countless farms in province had fallen to the Tarask. It attacked without mercy or reason, killed indiscriminately, and left only devastation in its wake. The army had sent men and horses and cavalry against it. There were few survivors, and those who lived claimed the beast had been struck directly by artillery. 
and neither flagged nor missed a step, the hole in its chest seemingly knitting together as it charged their positions. So what's interesting to me is, do you think the original Tarasque in this lore was, al- was also the lizard, or do you think it was its own creature that St. Martha put down? I feel like the implication is this is a thing that's been misidentified as the Tarasque. As the Tarasque, okay. Because it would be really cute if 6A2 got put to sleep by a saint song. But I think you're right. The entire region had been quarantined. Citizens were being evacuated by the thousands. And the army and the press were passing stories of plagues and Prussian revanchists. But his government feared the worst would soon come to pass. Nimis, Avignon and ours were in danger if the beast continued to rage. The four of us, the colonel claimed, were the finest hunters and scientific minds available and known to his government. He knew not if we were capable of taking down such a monster, but between our expert knowledge and unique access to the finest tools and weapons known to science, he hoped he could succeed where his own forces had failed. I love how it's like a 19th century hunt, but they're like playing it off like a spy mission, like only we can get behind enemy lines with the finest technology. Roosevelt's like, so that's it, huh? With some kind of suicide squad. <laughs> I left the meeting with a stack of papers. Details of the army's knowledge of the Tarasque based on what reconnaissance they, had, they have to date endeavoured. On Saturday, the four of us will board a steamer across the channel and travel to the epicentre of this pandemonium ourselves. Deeds, my loyal valet, has begun packing <gasps> no! my bags. Oh. I love this tale. This tale is so good. It's, it's like the ultimate crossover. Name, name a more ambitious crossover. I'll wait. I love Deeds. He's here. And he's having the more... I love how... Yeah, like 5,000, not even close to as good a crossover as this. And is having the more exotic armament in my arsenal prepared for shipping. I do not anticipate working with Mr. Harris any more than I anticipate shaking hands with the devil, but Messrs. Roosevelt and Dukov appear to be of sound mind and fine spirits, and with luck our more utterly quartet shall return to England with a fortune in our pockets and a story to tell. God, I hope there's a tale where Blackwood and Deeds get to be reunited. That would make me so happy. Well, and was this written by a different person than the first two? The first two were Jorick and Rick something? Yeah, this is what I like about the Blackwoods. A lot of it is written by different people and just sort of gradually become like... But, but I love how it kind of almost feels loyal to the lore of it, yeah? Yeah. Well, this... Alright. May, May 20th, 1883. We disembarked in Avignon after an uneventful trip by train from Calais. It may seem strange for a globetrotter such as myself, but until this weekend, I have never had occasion to travel to France. After all, it is a civilized place, lacking in the ancient mysteries and elusive game that is my passion, or so I would have thought. Mr. Roosevelt and I spent many hours sharing our tales of adventure. I find in him a true intellectual who understands what it means to be a naturalist. Mr. Dukov I found more difficult to talk to. He is a private man who prefers the company of his books and his studies to that of his fellows. He proudly displayed a variety of his own inventions he intended to test against the Tarasque, a gun that fires beams of electricity. Wait, was he the guy I mentioned that made the weird guns before? Uh, I don't think it's the same name. Okay. A jellied kerosene that burns without exploding, and what he described as his latest prototype. A large rifle on a tripod, fueled by refined pinch blend, which I suspect is not entirely different than Mr. Moth's destabilizing muskets, one of which I had brought myself. I did my best to avoid speaking to Mr. Harris during the trip. I intend during our expedition to be no less than a gentleman, but the man leaves a sour taste in my mouth. When we boarded the train at Calais, I watched as he had a large crate loaded onto the train, loaded onto the train, which he told us contained his secret weapon. He refused to tell us what the box contained, but viewing it made me uncomfortable. The air seemed to chill as it was carried by. In any event, it is too large to fit in our wagon. For now, we shall be leaving it in a bank vault in Avignon. 
Our weapons and provisions have been loaded onto a wagon, and horses have been readied for us. Tomorrow, Colonel Dayenfont will escort us to the edge of the quarantine zone. From there, he says, the four of us shall be on our own. He can spare no more soldiers, lest the beast attack the fortifications directly and break loose. May 21st, 1883. I have seen the horrors of war often enough in my years. I saw the wrath of the British Empire firsthand when I led troops in the Opium Wars. In Africa, I have seen native tribes fight to the last man, destroying everything in their path. In the Crimea, I barely escaped with my life, as thousands of men fought and died and cities were laid bare. The destruction I saw there pales in comparison to what I have beheld in the Tarasque's wake. Avignon itself looked like a city at war, soldiers patrolling the streets, barricades at the edge of town. Not far outside the city, we reached the edge of the quarantine zone. Soldiers had been hard at work digging trenches, erecting fortifications. Young men keeping watch looked battle-scarred as though they had seen indescribable horror. A constant stream of evacuees made their way out of the area, women and children, some with little more than the clothes on their back. Many looked confused and agitated, as if they had no clue why they were being removed from their homes. On the faces of others, there was no doubt. I asked on passing if any of them had yet seen the Tarasque. Only a few, the scouts and lookouts, lookouts had seen it from a distance, I was told, for nobody who had engaged the beast at close range was still alive. I did not yet dare to attack the perimeter the army had erected, but two days prior, a watchman told me, he had spotted it a mile from the front line, seemingly staring back at him. Mr. Harris grudgingly agreed to ride out alone and scout for the beast, while Mr. Roosevelt, Mr. Dukov and I followed the road to Tarascon to learn what we could of the nature of our quarry. I think another thing I like about this story... By the way, this is also so far pretty interesting prose, at least in my opinion. Mm. Um, is And maybe this is solely due to this being, obviously, in 1883 for them, and further in the past. But I like that like mystical things happened, and people knew about them. There wasn't a foundation popping a fucking amnestic down everyone's throat, you know? It kind of makes the world feel more mystical. And maybe that's just my personal preference as like, a fantasy fan, but I kind of dig it a lot. Yeah. Tarascon itself was a scene of utter ruination. Bodies lay by the score in the streets where they had fallen. Much of the town had been consumed by fire, the town's famous castle and other stone buildings dashed to rubble, and massive holes tore in the walls that remained standing. We saw not a living soul, no man or woman, no livestock nor vermin, nor birds or beasts of the field. Even the greenery of the town seemed to have been destroyed. I began to feel pangs of doubt in my stomach as we surveyed the scene. Could one creature have truly writ such destruction? We set up camp on the edge of the dead town. Mr. Harris returned by evening and informed us he had spotted the terrace to the southwest, near the village of Belgard, in the act of destroying a farmhouse. Its route, he said, had not been difficult to trace, for a swath of barren land seemed to lay a trail. Even the grass itself was not safe from the terrace's wrath. Tomorrow we'll follow the trail and engage the beast. May 22nd, 1883. We've met the Tarasque this day, and we are lucky to have escaped with our lives. We travelled southwest to Belleville, which we found in a state of destruction, not unlike that of Tarascon itself. From there we followed the creature's trail as it meandered south, then west, then northwest through the farmlands, drawing uncomfortably close to Nimes. Shortly after midday, we spotted the creature in the distance. It was stationary, seeming to nap in the afternoon sun. It was a massive thing, longer than a whale and taller than a giraffe, and it looked to outweigh either. Its scales glistened in the sun, and its teeth, massive and shining, were bared as it rested among the chaos it had wrought. Had it wings, I would have called it a dragon. 
With our weapons in tow, we stealthily approached the beast to a range of less than a hundred feet. Mr. Dukov set up his pitch-blend gun, which he claimed would take some time to charge before it could be fired, while Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Harris prepared their elephant guns and I readied my particle destabilizer. Behind a short fence demarcating one of the now-abandoned farms, we drew straws, and it was agreed I would take the first shot at the abomination. Steadying my gun against the fence, I took careful aim for the sleeping Tarask's head. I held my breath, made my final adjustment, and fired. The shot hit square and true, and we watched with delight as the top of the Tarask's head was shorn clean off. The beast slumped to the ground, and I breathed a sigh of relief. In one shot, the beast that had killed thousands and menaced the nation was dead. Mr. Harris let out a cheer, and the dead beast came to life. It rose to its feet and turned in our direction. Blood, brains, and gore oozed from its skull as a head missing an eye stared us down and let out a blood-curdling roar before it charged at us faster than a bull elephant. Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Harris barely had time to fire around each of the beasts before we were forced to scatter. Harris tossed aside his elephant gun for a smaller repeater he had been carrying and discharged a magazine into the Tarask's flank, and we watched in horror as the wounds it took sealed themselves within seconds. Mr. Dukov was forced to shut down his pitch-blend gun before it could fully charge and fired his electric rifle three times into the monster's open wound, stunning it for long enough for us to reach our horses. By the time we were on horseback, the beast was up again and charging us, and flesh and bone was knitting anew over the open cavity in its skull. I fired the particle's destabilizer again in its foreleg and took it off entirely, hobbling it as it tried to chase us on three legs. We rode in four directions and agreed to meet behind the quarantine line. I saw the beast attempt to take off in pursuit of Mr. Roosevelt, as the stump of its leg began to grow and take new form. But he was able to elude the Goliath, and by nightfall we were among the soldiers at the barricade, our prides injured but otherwise in good health. This is a long fucking story. We're like barely halfway. Are we going to be able to finish this? We're at like 53. What's going to happen if we take too long? Is someone going to kill us? Okay. Where is the concern? I family stuff, but I'll I'll try and explain it. Okay. Well, May twenty eighth, eighteen eighty three. Luck and providence have provided. Thus far, the Tarask has made no effort to escape the quarantine area, and has proven content to ravage the abandoned farms of province and feed liberally on the animals and plants left behind. After our second attempt to attack the Tarask on the twenty third proved no more successful than the first, we have come to a conclusion that a beast cannot be killed simply by gunshot or electrification or setting it flame for the rate at which it heals its injuries is so great, and its tolerance for pain and mutilation is so high, that even the mighty broadsides of the Royal Navy would have little chance of destroying it before it could take their lives in trade. To ta- slay the Tarask, we determined, we would have to immobilise it, and deal such destruction upon it that it would be utterly annihilated before it could free itself. We discussed for several hours how such a thing could be achieved, before an old sergeant who had been manning the v- night watch begged our ears. The sergeant had, he said, fought in Vietnam, when the natives there attempted to rebel, rebel against the French in 68, and had seen them make use of a trap that was elegant, easily disguised, and deadly. Mr. Roosevelt and I talked over the fine points of the idea well into the night, and the next day the four of us travelled into the field to lay our trap. We prepared our trap in the fields near Grezon, a village between Tarascon and Evignon that the Tarask had yet to lay waste to, and where the water table was amenable to our task. By careful observation, we had judged that the beast stood about nine feet at the shoulder, six feet wide and thirty feet long. With the help of a few soldiers who Colonel Defont had grudgingly conceded departing with, we dug a long trench in the field wide and long enough to contain the beast, and deep enough to stop the beast climbing loose before the damage could be done. In the bottom of the pit, we mounted steel rods, sharpened to a fine uh, point by the hundreds, each tipped with a noxious poison that had fired in the Orient. Running lengthwise through, lengthwise through the centre of the pits, we built a wooden bridge, large and sturdy enough to accommodate a man on horseback, 
but not so dirty that it would not break and shatter under the weight of the trask. Four days we were involved in the earthwork. The digging done, we laid a net across the top and it was covered with grass and leaves. From a distance it looked to all the world like an ordinary patch of open land, beneath which lay doom. Mr. Harris had spotted the tra- has spotted the trask not two miles from our location, and tomorrow we will spring the trap. Mr. Roosevelt has agreed to act as bait. He will approach the trask on horseback and attack it once with his elephant gun, and once it gives chase he will lure it to the pit. He is to gallop across the bridge and lure the trust to follow him. When it attempts to do so, it will surely fall into the pit. Mrs. Dukov and Harris and I, lying in wait out of sight, will then join Mr. Roosevelt at the pit's edge and unleash the full fury of our armaments into it. Our rifles and shotguns, the particle destabilizer, Mr. Dukov's electric rifle, and provided as charged safely, he shall make his first firing of the pitch blend gun. Once our armament has been exhausted, we shall pour four barrels of Mr. Dukov's jellied kerosene into the pit and ignite it, and, providence withstanding, Nothing shall be left of the creature but ash and bone but by sundown tomorrow. I love how it, like, I mean, there's a little bit that they have of stuff, but I, like, like, the particle destabilizer or whatever, but I love how it, like, really feels like they're using the limits of their technology to do their best to take this thing on. Mm. Oh, this is so much fun. I like this tale a lot. This is fun prose. <clears throat> Sorry, I just saw two words in bold, but... Uh, uh, May 29th, 1883. Success! The plan went off without a hitch. It was afternoon before Mr. Roosevelt could coerce the Tarask into pursuing him, but surely enough the reptilian behemoth fell into the pit, impaled upon the spikes, and was stuck while the four of us rained destruction from above. The monster let loose a screech from the pit of damnation itself as bullets and explosives tore its flesh loose bit by bit, and jellied kerosene burned slowly and stopped it regrowing. Mr. Dukov warned us to avert our eyes when he finally fired the pitch-blend gun, and his warning was justified. The blast was bright enough to blind, and a massive plume of smoke and fire erupted from the pit after he had pulled the trigger, seeming to blossom into a mushroom above us. By the time the fires had died down, a charred skeleton was all that remained. We have separated the beast's massive skull, blackened and perforated, from what remains of the monster, and a handful of soldiers who reported after the blast are hard at work filling in the pit with earth. Tomorrow we shall bring the skull back to Avignon and collect our reward! <laughs> May 30th, 1883. This is a long one. I may ask you to popcorn this one with me. Alright. Disaster! Disaster! We were hailed as heroes by the army we had arrived in Avignon with our prize. In the morning light, the Tarask's skull seemed whiter than it had the night before, and more charred flesh stuck to it than it had seemed when he dragged it from the pit, though surely it was little more than an illusion. The Vora was posed for photographs, and Mr. Dukov asked to have his photograph taken with his head in between the massive jaws of our fallen prey. No! Imagine our horror when the jaws snapped shut, severing Dukov's head neatly at the shoulders. The skull of the Tarask rolled loose from its place on the stage and slapped again, taking over a chunk of his body, and the soldier screamed and fainted as it seemed to be growing a new coating of flesh and scales over its charred exterior. We watched, shocked, as the honor guards fired a volley at the skull. The chips it took off seemed to replace themselves instantly, and I was dumbfounded as sinew and muscle seemed to spread across the creature's bones and knit into shape. The jaws of the disembodied Tarask opened, and it shouted in French, Vous me rende malade! <laughs> Which, uh, let's find out What's what that means. mean? <laughs> Can I Google Translate it? I assume it you means make, you, you uh, make me sick. Oh. <laughs> From the other end of the plaza, I heard more screams and looked to see the impossible. The rest of the Tarask. 
Covered in earth and grime, held together by a few lonely strands of muscle, the headless carcass lurched through the square with uncanny speed, trampling men in its path, ignoring gunshot and cannon fire as it made to rejoin its body. From What's interesting my... is, like, and it, it, it took a whole day for it to regenerate, where, like, in the modern 682, like... it takes, like, five seconds. Maybe it was intentional. Yeah. I do too. Or maybe, perhaps, you know, back in the day it was weaker, but after being utterly killed once, it got stronger by the time the Foundation got to it. Mm. I saw Mr. Harris take off running. Mr. Roosevelt noted he was headed in the direction of the bank vault and his secret weapon. As the skull of the asked him to be making its way towards where I stood, I gave Harris chase. We found Mr. Harris having dragged the Kate out of the vault into the lobby, hurriedly prying the boards loose. Soon the crate fell away, revealing a stone coffin that looked truly ancient. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what I was about to say! <laughs> I found this fishing! <laughs> it felt as if all the heat fled the room when the sarcophagus was exposed, and I forced back a shudder as I beheld it. Three chains with massive locks held the lid in place, and the lid and casket itself were covered with hand-carved runes that looked to be Sumerian or Arcadian. I confess that I have not taken the time to learn the ancient language of Mesopotamia, but I felt a distinct sense of wrongness emanating from the box as Mr. Harris drew a ring with three keys from his coat. Do you think it'll began... be Gilgamesh or Enkidu? Well, there's already a hint to who this is. And began to unlock the seals one by one. I begged of him to stop this madness and flee while we had a chance. And he insisted that once again our victory would be secured. Once open, even. Wait, what's, what's the hint? Is it Dracula? No, Mr. Harris pushed the lid aside, and Burley had a moment to regard his secret weapon in the flesh before an olive-toned arm, sword in hand, lashed out from within the box and sliced his head clean so, off. So does Gilgamesh. No. It's, oh. it's, it's Abel. Oh! Oh! Why, why, why did that confirm it was Gilgamesh, right? Because sword. <laughs> Right, popcorn. Alright. In all my years of adventuring among the primitives and wild men of the world, I have never set eyes on a man who looked so savage, so elemental, so full of primal rage as the being that now climbed from the coffin, naked, sword in hand, its long black hair flowing behind it, its body covered head to toe in tattoos of eldritch imagery and ancient languages that resembled no script written by man. Sherman, the American general, is said to have told his enemies, begging for mercy, that they may as well appeal against the thunderstorm. What I beheld before me, I thought, was the very eidolon of the storm. Mr. Roosevelt attempted to entreat with the man and beg its assistance. Seeming to barely hear him, the gold man set his eyes on Roosevelt and lunged with his sword. Roosevelt parried with his rifle, the barrel cracking under its onslaught, and in surprise, the god man dropped his blade. Roosevelt picked it up and attempted to return the blow, and in an instant, the, the god man somehow held another sword in each hand. Mr. Roosevelt did his best to fend off his assailant's onslaught, but found himself cornered soon. Though I am loath to intervene in a fair fight between two honest men, I could not bear to see Mr. Roosevelt cut down in the midst of this pandemonium. I drew my pistol and emptied its cylinder, discharging five rounds into the god man's head. Though it should have been dead, the olive-skin destroyer turned and stared me down. Like the Tarask, even with half its face gone, it seemed ready to kill. 
dropping one of its blades. It moved its hand rapidly through the air and tossed something at me faster than I could react. In an instant, I could not move my arms. The man had somehow materialized a bola, a weapon used by the cowmen of South America to immobilize fleeing animals, and it had tied itself securely around my chest. Another flick, and a second bola struck me around the legs, and I was down on the ground. He approached to land the killing blow, when behind me I saw the outer wall of the bank shudder and give way, and heard that offensive roar, the cry of the Tarask, nary a scratch upon it, as it entered the building in search of its would-be slayers. The godman caught sight of the Tarask and lost interest entirely in Mr. Roosevelt and I. This, I thought, must be why poor Mr. Harris considered him his secret weapon. This avatar of rage lived to fight, and in the Tarask, it had the ultimate rival. To describe the fight that ensued between those two unkillable titans would take a hundred pages or more. Mr. Roosevelt and I huddled in the safety of the bank vault, which alone seemed immune to the destruction the two reigned upon each other. After the better part of an hour had passed, hundreds lay dead around them, the centre of Avignon little more than rebel. The godman was missing an arm and half a leg, an eye, and the better part of his brain, and his stomach had been cut open. In a state where most men would be long dead, it continued to fight, severing even its own entrails and making weapons of them. The Tarask had suffered as badly. It was on the ground, recuperating, when I saw the godman take notice of Mr. Dukov's pitch-blend gun, lying near what remained of the stage that an hour ago had been the site of such jubilation. As we watched, the godman removed the core of the pitch-blend gun with an uncanny precision. He made what seemed to be bombs and explosives appear, and it strapped them to the device's core, which he mounted on his chest. Lighting a fuse, it charged at the Tarask as it readied itself to meet him. Having seen the fury of the pitch-blend gun in a controlled state, Mr. Roosevelt and I had no desire to see what happened next. We retreated into the vault as a blinding light filled the square, and a blistering wind, mightier than the hurricanes of the Caribbean, slammed the door shut and sealed us within. It is dark. The light from my electric torch had, has provided just enough luminescence. <gasps> luminescence, Chan. <laughs> it's them. Uh, by which to write this account. I know not for how long the, the air in this vault will last. Aside from the lifeless body of Mr. Harris, there is nothing in this vault that approximates food or water. And as Christians and gentlemen, Mr. Roosevelt and myself have sworn not to pursue that dark path unless our lives themselves are on the line. I do not know if I will make it out of here alive. If I do not, let the diary be my last word and testament to the horrors that have befallen this corner of the world. Damn. June 13th, 1883. Providence Nearly smiled... two weeks later. Providence smiled upon us after all in the end. On the morning of the first, the vault door opened and I regarded a major of the army and a company of men searching for survivors. Mr. Roosevelt and I were dehydrated and beginning to suffer from pitchblend fever. Fortunately, I knew the address of one of my dear friend Henry's associates in Marcel. Upon being transported to hospital, he met us there and provided the treatments necessary to stave off the certain death that the malicious egg carries with it. Colonel Dauphont is dead, I have learned, and at least 10,000 others who were incinerated when Avignon was consumed by flame. Even those who had survived, I learned, have been burned or blighted, and pitch-blend fever will likely claim many of them in time. No sign has been seen of the Tarasque or the Godman since the explosion, nor, for that matter, of the icy sarcophagus in which he apparently slept until the late Mr. Harris loosed him upon the city. Is this implying the Foundation took them into custody? Who knows? It will take years, if not decades, to restore this ancient region to its former glory. We were two of only a handful of witnesses to one of the greatest disasters to strike France in recent memory, and having been at the centre of it all, the army regarded us with great suspicion. We were interrogated several times, first by soldiers, then by police, then by politicians. A man who looked English watched and took notes, but said not a word as we told our story. In the end, we escaped transportation to Devil's Island, but the reward that had been promised was forfeit, and we were sternly warned that neither of us were welcome in France again so long as we lived. <laughs> the explosion that claimed Avignon was seen for hundreds of miles, I learned, 
and the press from Paris to New York were heavily embroiled in speculation. Everything from a falling star to a German superweapon to the wrath of God himself was being proposed as an explanation. We were warned not, to, warned not to share our personal knowledge of the event with others as we were sent on our way. Mr. Roosevelt and I parted ways in Calais. He tends to return to America, he informed me, and pursue a political career. In that, I wish him well. <laughs> I, I returned to my house in London this afternoon and was informed by deeds that a postcard had arrived for me this morning. The handwriting in the brief, unsigned note within resembled that of the strange Englishman who had attended the questionings, whose notes I caught brief glimpses of from time to time. I present that message below. To Lord Theodore Thomas Blackwood, CBE, the Royal Foundation for the Security, Containment and Protection of Anomalous Objects and Phantasmagoria requests a meeting for the purpose of negotiating an alliance favourable to both our parties. Please call any time, excepting Sundays, at number 19 Marylebone Road, Westminster, and ask to speak to Dr. Thursday. Your discretion is requested in this matter. Why does Dr. Thursday sound familiar? It's uh, actually a day of the week. Fuck you, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I don't know. I have not heard of this foundation before, and I do not know if I intend to take them up on their mysterious overture. Perhaps I shall hear them out. But I have never been one to serve in one man's employ for very long, and I value my freedom as a naturalist and explorer above all else. We shall see. Oh, guys, is this how he got captured? Well, he wasn't a slugger this time. <laughs> oh, who knows? Interesting. I liked that a lot. I'm giving that a 12 out of 10. That was excellent prose. It was a really fun read all around. It was obviously funny and like wild and it had some crossovers, but it was also just generally interesting prose. I was enraptured. That was fun. Yes, I, I like these stories. And then upvote. There's a few that of these deserves from, way uh, more upvotes than 198. From who? There's quite a few of these from Smapty. These are Lord Blackwood stories, so I just sort of picked one that I liked. <laughs> Yeah, Smapty, you did amazing, my friend. I hope you still write. If not, that's a darn shame. Even if it's not for the wiki, I hope you still write in some capacity. That was great prose. That was fun. Okay, well, we've got one left for today. Oh, man. I really, really like that. Uh, so are we still doing the fourth one? What do you think? We are about a little... Sorry, but you cut out for all of that, so I don't know finished. what you just said. <laughs> I said, so do you still want to do a fourth one? We're already about an hour and nine minutes this in. This one is by Jorick, so the original uh, Lord Blackwood creator. Okay. And this one is called When One Reaches the End. It's, it's pretty short. This is another Lord Blackwood tale? This is not short at all. <clears> you <throat> lied to me. Ah, so I'll pop around Jorick. Alright. And this one's by who again? Yeah. Jarek, nice. He wrote not so these. He wrote Blackwood, right? Right off. Okay. These were Her Majesty's finest. A half dozen old okay. men poking around the mortar holes and hi. Hello. I know. I know it is. It's been shit. Sorry, you, you're cutting out pretty bad for me. Through. I think your internet's starting to go a little. These were Her Majesty's finest, a half-dozen old men poking <laughs> around the mortar holes and dugouts amidst the mist and mud and stench of the dead, all in the name of a crone who'd been dead for nearly twenty years. He didn't think it possible, but Vladislav's already abysmal opinion of the British had sunk ever lower over the last hours as he watched them pick up their remains. These were Russian soldiers. What right did a bunch of old men and their underlings have to swoop down upon the battlefield, upon his own blood-stained homeland, and pick apart his countrymen like crows? Crows. That was a good word for them. 
The underlings all wore long black coats and gas masks, even when they were unneeded. A red crown was stenciled on the sleeves, above the letters HMF SCP. The old men... Yeah. There's one from that one. <laughs> it's the SCP Foundation. Oh. The old men had no such coat, no such gas masks, no such crown, uh, yeah. and as such none of them handled any of the bodies or weapons. They only watched, occasionally croaking out an order and inspecting what the crows had already gathered and sorted. Drizzle tapped on the tarp above his head, and Vladislav wondered how much longer he and his comrades would have to be here, and how he even came to be in this position, and who had pulled what strings in both countries. They were here to guide and translate and guard, and precious little else. The old man in the wheelchair licked his lips again. Vladislav shuffled his feet, inching away from the one other inhabitant of the tarp pavilion. The other old men, they were just foolish old men. This man, though, he was simply unsettling. The old man was ancient, well over 90 years old, if not 100. He appeared less of a man and more of a sack of bones wrapped in thin, clammy skin stretched tight over knobbly joints and thick blue veins. A thin white wisp on his lip showed where there had once been a bushy moustache. He was laid in coats and blankets to fight off the chill. The blanket across his lap was worn and faded, but at one point would have held a beautiful, intricate pattern. But man's half-blind eyes stirred off into the distance, focused on things that were not there. He had not spoken the entire time Vladislav had been standing there. Occasionally would mouth silent words or lick his lips, and that was all. The crows seemed to have finished collecting the bodies and debris. Several of them had begun drawing circles in the mud around the battlefield, while others wheeled out barrels of powder and liquids and began to spread them in neat symbols. Vladislav had seen this sort of thing twice before, once as a child and once as they taught him to kill men with a bit of lead. He had learned then that these events... Yeah, Vladislav. So this is right, this yeah. is from the perspective of Vladislav, not Blackwood. He had right? learned then that these events were of the kind that even if one did see okay, it, just making sure. it was a good thing to say that you had not seen it, and a better thing to know that you did not see it. Vladislav continued to not see the crows setting up their circles and stakes and symbols in the middle of for several cold, rain drizzled minutes. Ugly, isn't it? A cold, quiet voice, cr- voice croaked in accented Russian. Vladislav looked to the man in the wheelchair to see him licking his lips again. His imagination then, or perhaps it was something that he most certainly did not hear. Uh, I'll popcorn you there. No, it was the old man who had spoken. He would be foolish to think otherwise. It is what it is, Vladislav said back to the old man, continuing to not see the crows scrawling and chanting on the field. It's very ugly. Indeed. Drizzle, drizzle, drizzle. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. What was this gibberish? He was mad then. Why bring an old madman to this forsaken stretch of forest? There was never a dome, the old man continued. Twice I went to Xanadu, and I never saw the dome. The Khans never took Xanadu. They broke upon its mountain walls over and over again, and they never entered. Vladislav didn't respond. Let the madman ramble. He was too busy not watching the horrible images shimmering across the mortar-pocked mud and splintered trees. The men of Xanadu thought that they would bring peace to the world. I love how this is like an NPC giving lore and he's like trying to skip the dialogue. <laughs> that all the hordes of the world would break upon their walls until no man had strength for war. And then all would share in their glory. Their peace died with them, slowly, by disease. 
decent inbreeding. But the idea remained. For peace, men must die. Vladislav still listened, but the words fell into uncaring ears. A wonderful story, old man. You were only late by twenty years in the World War for this soldier. The old man continued, Certain legions of the Romans would bring with them great beasts who consumed the corpses of the dead and turned them into food and water for the troops. In China, I saw a drug that would cause a man's innards to combust when blood was drawn, spraying acid strong enough to melt flesh. The peoples near the South Pole fight wars with women who, each time they are unchained, will twist all creation around them into monsters by their very presence. In the jungles of Africa, I once met a tribe who worshipped a giant spider. On the night of the full moon, they would feed one of their own to it. They stayed where they were, and kept feeding it every full moon, despite the fact that the spider was so fat from its meals that it could not leave its pit. And here, I've seen dead men shuffling down in the blood and mud of the trenches as they rot without death. And I watch as we pick up what remains of Durand's peace and plan for the next war. It's ugly, and it never changes. The old man coughed. It was a horrible, flummy noise. At the very least, I will not live until the next. He was quiet. Drizzle, drizzle, drizzle. Vladislav went back to not watching the nebulous visions of unfolding unfathomable cosmos and impossibilities and the margins of worlds worn thin. He didn't feel like he had anything to say to the mad old man. He looked to, the le to his left to see the old man reach a trembling skeletal hand for a little bell hanging on the arm of his wheelchair. Tingling! The bell hung in the air a moment, out of place, before Vladislav heard footsteps. A man rounded the corner and entered the pavilion. He was wearing a crow's uniform, though he held his mask under his arm, revealing the face of a man about forty years old, with a little grey around the temples and a pencil-thin mustache. His posture was stiff, professional, that of a man ready to serve. I've seen enough deeds. Take me somewhere warm, please. It's dreadfully cold. Mm. Of course, sir. Uh, I'm guessing that was Blackwood. But, here's the interesting thing. This implies that he joined up with the Foundation, yeah? I don't so know. So, how the fuck did they not know really who he was when he became a snail? <laughs> uh, I do, too. Honestly, I'm going to uncanon, the, 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 even though it's the actual article that says they don't believe him, I'm going to say they know who this guy is and they this, give him the finest treatment. This is such a depressing a story. Prey. It's I the young it. guys that don't know who he is. The old guys know. Maybe that's why no one believes him, because he's so old now, because he was around, like, what, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that, like, all the people that are alive in the Foundation now don't know who the fuck he is. Like, who are you, old fucking snail? You're an idiot. He's like, oh, you kids don't fucking know. I killed 682. Did you do that? Yeah, I Didn't really, think like, I really so. like this one. Hmm. Oh, man, this is a good story. I'm giving... I'm giving this one a 12 out of 10 as well, in an upvote. Seriously, these tales don't have nearly as upvotes as they should. It baffles me, uh, and I hate to do this because I, I don't want to... I hate it's putting okay. down other... I don't want to say a specific SCP or tale because I don't want to put down other <laughs> stories. But I feel like there's so many articles... 
Uh, no, I was gonna say the one that's like the flesh that hungers or whatever, the the Sarkic one. I have no idea how that one has so many upvotes, and a lot of not just these tales, but a lot of other ones we've read don't. Like they just don't get as much attention because they don't have a fancy picture, and it's stupid. This is awesome prose, especially with the context and the background mm. of the other ones we read. I'm really glad, Tanhani. Serious moment, mask off. I'm like super glad you took me on this journey, and like if in the order you did as well. This was super enjoyable. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, I, I really, did not expect it today. I really enjoyed it. This one from probably Very my favorite good. Blackwood thing. Big as well, Lord but Blackwood it needs fan. the context of the ones. Yeah, and and, and and it's made good. Yeah, you need the context. Right. It's so made good with is, all the as context. As you said, going on long, we, wow. we've still got a few comments from last time. Yeah. <laughs> no new yeah, we're not going to read all of them like we did for Christmas. We're just going to go over some highlight comments that I picked out, if that's all right. You had your Christmas. Um... You get a New Year's celebration when the Omori video does well. It's not doing as well as I thought it would. I think we were a couple days late because all the other Omori videos that had like two views are like blowing up and ours is not. I think we were just a few days late to the trend to really profit off it. But we're still going to play it, I think, because Omori's super fun. All right. So, <clears throat> Lang Lim says, Now I'm imagining SCP-784-1 instances try to decorate the deer and fucking die. Notes, password is... And I shall enjoy the gift as much as I can. Boris WW says, Loki. Oh, sorry. Loki, glad you didn't do that Christmas SCP. Not sure what he's referring to. Uh, Candy Queens says, I can't wait for your anime Christmas story. And I don't think we'll see Hunter Spatafora again. I am indeed down bad. This is the second week in a row without a Hunter Spatafora comment. And uh, don't talk to me. I'm, I'm going Kaneki profile picture. <laughs> uh comedy man kelp says hey santa claus deniers if santa isn't real then how come he narrated this episode's intro oh i'm one of darnell's recurring favorites love you too king thanks no for the god tan much appreciated password is yeah comedy man kelp we appreciate you and he made a what good point i don't really get how people no can deny santa claus when he literally narrated last episode think about intro. it Yeah. <laughs> it's just the mental gymnastics you oh, Santa deniers have to do is too much long. for me, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Banker Paul says, you will not hear the password from me. Transition. Darnell's singing voice actually sounded pretty good when he got serious about it. Transition number two. Oh, wait, well, after cool, Googling what uh, made in heaven Paul, is... But you that, that, obviously that, didn't listen that. to the last episode, otherwise you wouldn't know the password. Yeah. Well, he obviously didn't watch the last episode because he doesn't know the password. You didn't what? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, so your gift has been retracted. <laughs> and then uh, last one I'm going to read is uh, from Quaker Buttonnose128, who says, ara, ara, I've had like three great ideas for Christmas SCPs in the past few days, and now it's too late to write them. No, it's not. You can write them whenever the hell you want. You might get a slight boost in views otherwise from like people browsing the new page. Just if you write them do and them act like it's still Christmas. Time, but I say write them. Don't wait. I uh, guess I'll just sit on them for a year. Yeah. I think 1224-J is one of those that SCPs like that, that seems worse when you read it out loud. Maybe because it's so short? Which one was that again? Was that the Irish cream one? Oh. 
I was going to recommend SCP-3178, The Price You Pay, since it's in Series 4, and I really enjoyed oh, reading no. it when Hexic posted on the server the other day, but it looks like it's been deleted. Well, uh... Oh, rip. Alright, and um, that is where we're going to cut it off for today in terms I know of we, comments. We Any closing remarks, Tim? But I'm throwing you a curveball, so if you only listen to the first five minutes, you're not going to see this one come in. So, I, I'm I sorry. know you said at the start of the episode that it wasn't Wait, a When did you say you cut out all uh, of that for me? We've tricked the people who only tune in for the first five minutes, and so now we can give out the real password. Mm-hmm. Yes, although so I hope you did still for this week on Royal Road, the assuming you read April Space, which you should, because it's good. Uh, what's the password? What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, no, that chapter three. so fucking stupid. One point, the third three. sentence of 1.3. Because you said the, the dot... But you said the dots of the chapters. Okay, there you go. That would be nice. Well, you have to read All the story right, to find that Except sentence. Except don't actually do that. You should just read the story. They wouldn't do that. It. They wouldn't do that to me. No, you don't. You just have to click 1.3 and then look for the third sentence. But you haven't. I would do that. I... Exactly. I'm sorry. I haven't, because I actually enjoy Aetheral Space. Anyway, aside from that, Good Morning Poon Poon episode came out yesterday as of recording this. By the time this is out, it'll have been a couple of days. But if you aren't following Good Morning Poon Poon, I strongly recommend giving it a look. Um, although, what I would recommend even more first is you should go read Oyasumi Poon Poon, because it's awesome. And uh, I think that's about yeah. Oh yeah, of course, go check out Amori. Um, I think I'm, we're pretty happy with the way we presented that series. We're gonna for the gaming episode. By which we mean they will now have thumbnails. Thumbnails, because <laughs> um, we haven't been doing those before. <laughs> also, Tanhoney did a really great job in the descriptions, and honestly, it's also just a fun game. We're having fun with it so far. We're gonna probably record some more on Friday to start getting a bit of a backlog because I don't want to wait a whole week to play more of it because it's fun. Um, but yeah, uh, I anyways, I hope you all have a had a great holiday, <laughs> and I hope you have an even better new year. Hey, enough of that. Tanhoney, no, I'm sending you to, I, I to the Totino's to Fortnite game training room. Bye! Sorry! Bye!